There it is. I'm Charles Holmes from The Ringer Music Show. And I'm Cole Kushner from Dissect. And Charles and I are teaming up to create Last Song Standing, a new show where we determine an artist's single best song by debating our way through their entire catalog. And for our first season, we're covering Kendrick Lamar. We're talking Good Kid to Pimple Butterfly, Damn, Mr. Morale, the mixtapes, the Lucy's, and the features. Listen to Last Song Standing on the Dissect podcast feed only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, thrilled because his automatic leg massager just arrived in the mail, it's Andy Greenwald! Boy, that seems like a nice thing to get. I like that. What's up, Andy? Uh, it's Monday evening when you're listening to this. We're going to be talking about the new episode of Better Call Saul and the first episode of the second season of Industry Today. Hence the delayed late night release, but it's we're doing this on Monday, the afternoon, afternoon in Philadelphia, morning in California. I'm here visiting my mom. It's hot and humid. It's just spritzing sweat out of the sky. I didn't know we still did that. It's great to see you. How are you doing today? I mean, I'm out of the office. I'm joining the rebellion. I just watched the new Andor trailer. Yeah, I'm we're going to talk about this. So uh, before we get into breaking down the shows we wanted to talk about today, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this Andor trailer, which is mm-hmm. not remarkably different or more expansive than the t- teaser that we got with the banging of the, the drums and the clock tower and all that. But a couple notable things. One, we get a little Forrest, Forrest Whitaker. Mm-hmm. Always sick when that happens. Two, I think it really speaks to the sweeping nature of the series uh, as I'm kind of wondering how much kid Cassian we're going to get in this jam uh, for everybody who doesn't know Andor is the prequel to Rogue One, which itself was a prequel to the first three movies of the star Wars saga. Mm-hmm. The other notable thing that came out of this trailer is not actually in the trailer, but is a part of the announcement of the trailer is that they're pushing this show back a month to mm-hmm. September 21st. And they are going to be releasing three episodes uh, the first the first drop will be a batch of three episodes, which will be very, very interesting because I'm not sure like how long these episodes are or or whatever, but they're kind of following. I guess this is kind of how the first season of The Boys did it, right? Like did every they did season that batch? of The Boys. Every season of The Boys. And I think the common, the conventional wisdom is like they're ducking Thrones a little bit here. Like they're ducking the, the Thrones uh, Rings of Power glut that's going to be happening in about three weeks so what are your takes i guess we can start with the trailer and then we can talk about the release 
Look, I, I think the only Star Wars property or release from the last 10 years that you and I like more than Rogue One is the Rogue One trailer. So I, I want to say the Rogue use... One trailer is the second best Star Wars movie. Maybe the yes. third best Star Wars movie. <laughs> I would say this trailer is in the conversation. I, I agree with you. <laughs> I think this trailer is incredible. I think the show looks beautiful. I think more than beautiful, I think the show looks considered. Now, everybody knows we're in the tank for the filmmaker behind the show, Tony Gilroy. He's patron saint of the podcast. He wrote the dialogue that is in the loop in our opening uh, music. Do you think he's, he's, is it beknownst to him or unbeknownst to him? I told him. And what did he these say? Are, these are not stories we've told in the podcast, but I have told Tony Gilroy that. Uh-huh. And was uh, he like, and, good to know? Or was he just like, what, do you guys, do I get residuals? What was his, what was his response? All of that flashed across his face, but... <laughs> You know, and I hope I hope he'll come talk to us on the podcast. Like, I, I think that he is a fascinating figure to us for many reasons, both his output, but also in reality, he is what you would imagine in that he is 50% Michael Clayton, his mm -hmm. greatest cinematic creation, and he is 50% Barton Fink. Like, all writers have to be writers on some level. So I think yeah. the main takeaway from this information, other than, I'm sorry, who are you again? And what's a podcast was, thank you for recognizing my Bourne movie. Born yeah. Legacy. Like he he wants that movie to be liked as it should be. Like we respect. did what Matt so, Damon could not recognize it, which is to recognize, recognize the Born Legacy. Um I mean, just watch this trailer, guys, and this suggests a television show that has a reason for being. And that it's as simple as that, you know. And I I'm not gonna belabor the issues with Obi-Wan, but I don't think even the people responsible for Obi-Wan would argue that the inciting incident for that show was, hey, let's get Ewan McGregor playing Obi-Wan Kenobi again and then see what comes from there. I, I, Regardless of whether the inciting incident for this show was Diego Luna was awesome, let's see if we can give him more to do. The secondary or tertiary thoughts behind that that I guess came from our guy Tony are what rule the day in that let's make a sweeping drama about a rebellion. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And that's it. That's maybe it's it's, it's a fine point shit, to make. Man. If the if Rogue One was essentially talking about the inciting incident, was somebody saying, "How did they get the plans?" Yep. How did they get the plans to the Death Star? You know, mm -hmm. if that was basically like a, a a question, and Rogue One was the answer, and or is the question of like how did the rebellion start? I'm much more interested in that. You know, yes, like that's it's a great that's, question. That's also something, and Gilroy has talked about this, and maybe it's like, you know, maybe it's best laid plans, but he's essentially laid out like a multi season plan for this show mm -hmm. with time shifts and where it's going to go and what he's obviously thought this through in a way that's not just like, well, we have a contract option on Diego Luna that's going to expire in 2022. So we got to get this show up. We got to get something going. And, yeah, it's thrilling. And like the idea of all the sort of I think in some ways also it has the potential to realize some of the some of the I guess charm might be not a word that I would use, but some of what the prequels, the you know, the Lucas mm -hmm. prequels that came out and the idea of like what was the political state mm -hmm. of play for this obviously fictional place long a long time ago, far, far away. But just like I kind of am curious about the parliamentary stuff. Who's this this you know the senator who's like sort of seeding the rebellion yeah, you, you want starborgan you always have i have can i just carve out a little something here and say you just threw it away because you know you just have so many good ideas but 
the idea of the contract option expiring on Diego Luna during Major League Baseball trade week, like, what if Diego Luna was Juan Soto? Like, what if he was like, I'm not going back to the galaxy far, far away, and so Lucasfilm had to trade him? Oh, and just me, so now he's Cyclops? <laughs> well, <laughs> right, like, would Marvel trade for him, and who would they trade to Star Wars? Like, I think there's something here for a future mailbag of, like, if the franchises were franchises. So franchise IP trade machine is essentially yes. what you want to build. Yes. Can we get on that? On the top of your mind, uh-huh. right off the top, can you think of somebody who you think is mired in a certain universe that you would love to see traded to another? Well, so I, I need a second to process that. What I was thinking was more that Marvel is... Uh, well, now I'm going to switch sports. I was going to say the Heat. But like Marvel is more like the Cardinals here, okay? Mm-hmm. Not Marvel's obviously a big market team, unlike St. Louis, but Marvel has invested well in its farm system. So sure. last week when we're talking about like the future plans that Kevin Feige was laying out, I was like, you know, I just don't know if a movie with Daniel Brühl and Wyatt Russell and Florence Pugh and uh, Haley Steinfeld is blockbuster material. That said, that's a lot of young talent. That's a lot of prospects. You know what I mean? Like that's a lot, a lot of live to dream arms on. in the bullpen. Yeah, you could you could package some of those guys, and you could bring back a major, you know, a, a, a difference maker. We can give so, it some thought. I think this is a good. Maybe this is a good exercise for when we don't have anything going on. Although uh, I don't know when the percent. next time is that I, we won't have anything going but, on. But Jonathan Majors is the like the one that they signed. Like they made his major league call up, and they signed him to a ten year deal like that. Right. And that was a smart call. Okay, so, but that aside, I, we don't know if Andor the show is going to be any good. We haven't heard any advance word. We know our guy, Evan Moss Backrack, is in it, which is exciting from the bear, but so, which is a sign that it might be pretty good or at least worth watching. But I think that when Disney bought Lucasfilm and we knew there was more content coming, I think that there were, for us, if I may speak for you a little bit here, I think there were two big things that we were interested in coming out of that deal. One was, what does a Star Wars movie look like? What does Star Wars in the movie theaters mean for a new generation of people? And that's an, still an open question going forward. But the second piece, and we said this a lot at the time, was show us other parts of the world. Show us grown-up parts of the world. Like give mm-hmm. us something that we would want to watch now, not for nostalgia reasons. And aspects of Mando season one and two touched on some of that, very pleasurable, enjoyable stuff. But this seems to be the first show pivoted directly towards what we th- think that we want. And I say this all with the even larger caveat that there is a third plank here that I think surprised us, which is that people wanted the Clone Wars stuff. People wanted the th- the stories that had kept Star Wars vital yes. to them yes. brought into the fold in a mainstream way. Or spinning way. off of that or whatever it is, yeah. That and there so are characters we, we, within that world where the dudes are just like, I'm, I'm waiting for Thrawn. I'm yeah, and we were Ezra. ignorant of all that. Yeah, but, and I was like, okay, yeah. But that has been hugely successful, I think, you know, both for the company and for those diehard fans. But this is the third piece that we're interested in. So this is know, we piece. don't know about the quality, but this is for us. So we're excited. <laughs> um, should we just get into, oh, I wanted to ask you though. So what do you mm-hmm. think of the pushing it back a month? I think it's smart. I think it's really, really smart, particularly because if it is the more like grown up genre stuff that we hope that it is, that means it, is in direct competition in a way with the House of the Dragon audience and the Rings of Power audience, right? Like it is not, it's not Baby Yoda season three 
which is a much broader appeal at this point, you know? So I think it's very, very smart to duck it and push into the fall where the really only competition it's going to have is what uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, right? Like that's, that's not really... coming out. That's not coming out until uh, con next year. Oh, okay. So then there's, yeah. so it's just open road basically, right? <laughs> yeah. For Andor through the rest of the year. It's just Andor season. That's the only piece of culture being released. That's all I'm aware in of. Q4. Yeah. Uh, it's that and Bradley Cooper's Maestro, uh, oh, which is yeah, another thing I'm very interested in. Um, yeah. I kind of, entertainment. your point about it being with the overlap, I'm, I'm curious about. You know, there's a style to the Favreau Filoni stuff that is, I think it has like plot density. Like mm-hmm. there's a lot going on, but I think in its broad strokes is fairly easy to kind of grasp, which is yeah, this powerful person is protecting a less powerful person, you know, or then this less powerful person might actually be powerful too. You know, like there's it does have a kind of clean Kurosawa Western kind of storytelling where it's just like mm-hmm. it's a very like understandable thing. If I'm reading the trailers right and I'm reading the tea leaves right, I think that you could have a lot of sort of not only plot density, but uh, a lot of ambiguity in Andor, where it's like, who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? What's the long-term thing here? How is this all relating both to Rogue One and to A New Hope? And all the stuff that, you know, I think that you and I are very excited about, but will probably take 30% of somebody's brain to kind of keep up with. It's not going to be like a second screen show. We can get into Better Call Saul now, if you want. Yes, just the last point. Ultimately, what for whatever reason... Uh, Disney claims, whatever reason they publicly say that is why they moved Andor out of the killing floor of yeah. this late summer time slot. I'm just grateful. Like, it wasn't good for the consumer to be inundated. And forget whether it was good for the podcast. I'll tell you or something not. else. After all these stories about, and Vulture had something uh, that was just basically a firsthand account of what it's like to work at a VFX house under mm-hmm. Marvel uh, in the time of Marvel and doing work for Marvel, and about how all of these shows and all, all of these movies feel a little bit unfinished because of the process through which Marvel tends to at least allegedly work with these VFX houses. Anytime one of these movies gets pushed from now on when it's not like, oh, because COVID is ravaging this nation and movie theaters are closed. If they're ever just like, hey, you know what? This is going on a streaming service. So if it goes up tomorrow or it goes up six weeks from now, it's really just pressing a button. You know, it's not about Mm -hmm. whether or not AMC theaters are going to be able to sustain without it for a month. Mm -hmm. Take all the time you need. For real. Like, I know that the whole thing with Andor is that a lot of it is practical effects and real locations and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And it doesn't have the... The volume it look, it looks great. And it also gray. I'm really glad to get off that desert. I just think that like if if anybody is like, yeah, you know what, we need like six more weeks to get some of this stuff right, then that's fine. Look, guys, I don't care. Chris and I have waited 45 years to get the origin story of Cassian Andor. <laughs> we didn't even know he existed for 40 of those years. So it's fine. It's cool. The first thing I thought when I saw Rogue One was where did this guy come from? I need to know more about his childhood. I need to know immediately. <laughs> I don't need to know about anybody's childhood. Do no, you? I know. No, all I know is that you played Little League. I That's hope that all this I care is, about. I hope, that the, I hope that the childhood stuff in Andor is like eight minutes. I hope... That that's the real reason why it pushed is because after Kid Leia, they were like, scrub it. The third <laughs> episode is now the pilot. Kid Andor. <laughs> For real. Oh my God. All right. So let's talk about this Better Call Saul episode, man. So we are now in the home, home, home stretch. We For are, real. We are rounding. We're kind of passing the shortstop on our trot 
you know? What if every week we talked about Better Call Saul, I revealed to you that there was actually another episode? <laughs> Three or four more episodes? Like that more would kind of work, realized. actually, in terms of my vacation, but we'll, we'll let that happen. So uh, this episode, cheekily, is called Breaking mm. Bad. If mm-hmm. folks remember, in season three of Breaking Bad, Saul Goodman was introduced in an episode called Better Called Saul. That episode was written by Peter Gould, who would go on to create Better Call Saul. Yep. Everybody is going to be talking about uh, the two cameos that we see in this episode of Better Call Saul. Uh, Brian Cranston and, and Aaron Paul revisiting their classic roles as Jesse Pinkman and Walter White, respectively. But Andy, I would posit mm. that a more important cameo took place. It's just one that we didn't see or hear. And that okay. is the phone call that yes. Gene makes from a payphone somewhere in Nebraska to a sprinkler company in Florida where he asks to talk to Kim Wexler, who he thinks is working at this company. And we don't get to hear what is said. We see him angrily gesticulating, really frustrated. He kicks the glass in on this phone booth after their conversation. I guess you could get cheeky and say, well, we don't even know if the person working at the sprinkler company connects him with Kim, if she's working Mm -hmm. that day, who he's talking to. Mm -hmm. I am choosing to sort of go with, I think he's talking to Kim, but I don't think they're ready to reveal the nature of their relationship. This asks a ton more questions than it answers, but it does tell us that Jimmy at least knows where to find Kim. Mm -hmm. This also comes after he's talked to Francesca for the first time since the end of Breaking Bad, and they kind of catch up on a couple of their old uh, mutual mutual friends, I guess. And he pays her off money that he, he had said that he was going to give her. He finds out that most of his money has been frozen. Any remaining funds he had has been seized. But yeah, I for as much as I enjoyed seeing Aaron Paul and, and Brian Cranston in the RV, I, g- I got to say, the thing that really leapt out at me was the Kim conversation. Yeah, and I think that's significant. And I also think it's fortunate. I am not, I mean, this isn't going to be a surprise. Maybe we're, you and I are in the same boat about this. Maybe some of our listeners are as well. I think it's nice to see those guys back. I'm never going to say no, but I thought it was both smart and telling that there wasn't a ton for them to do because there aren't that many blank spaces in their narrative. It was really more of just a nice, we get to see the flip side of it. The show does seem to be suggesting that Saul was more instrumental in bringing Walt into the fold than we had yes. realized, which is something worth discussing. It's, it's an interesting retcon. In Breaking Bad, the episode, or in, yeah, in better. better Call Saul, the episode of Breaking Bad, Saul is like, I want to be your silent partner. You know, yeah. he goes to see Walt in his classroom at the end of the episode. That's the episode where Badger gets arrested. Yeah. Uh, and he goes and sees Walter and he's just like, I think you have like a very important very special product and I want to be a partner and, and help you get it distributed. So yeah. I think that the idea, though, you're talking about is he's in this RV looking at all this stuff that Walter has, the, 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 all the flasks and everything, and he's like, you're the, you, he, he recognizes potential. Yeah. Let, let's come back to that cameo, though, because I, I think that you're right to begin where you began. And I guess my first question is, Chris, as someone who, for whom it would be generationally possible, have you ever ended a payphone call with such frustration that you slammed the receiver down until it broke? No, and I also, I mean, also, my good friend has never been murdered by the mafia, and the all-time great slamming the payphone down until it breaks is De Niro Yes, uh, doing that after Joe Pesci gets got in Goodfellas. But maybe, you know, I, I, there's a lot of life left. Maybe I should join an organized crime family and have that happen so that I can just do that. I'm trying to think of the most frustrating phone call I ever experienced on a payphone, and it was probably like 
calling my mom from the payphone at my school being like, can you pick me up early today instead of at five? <laughs> and she would say, no, I'm at my job. And I'd say, okay, guess I'll eat some Ritz crackers or whatever. And, like that's, yeah. and then read alone. <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> so you're welcome listeners. Um, um, so the Kim I called thing, my mom and I would just be you know, like, uh, I just need a couple extra hours for some after practice shooting work, you know, like totally. I just, I just want to get up some more shots like Kobe. coach coach says I'm using the wrong hand. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is, it is incredible to like, and it's both incredible and totally uninteresting to tell people that like the one payphone on campus was like the hearth. You know what I mean? Like it was the yeah. most exciting place to be, but there was nothing interesting about it. Like it never rang. And you didn't have a lot of quarters to call people. Did you ever you have, um, did your parents ever give you the calling card number? Like the AT&T uh, calling card number? When I, once, like when I went to sleepaway camp. Yeah, I, had, like, I got I that. I had the MCI digits. I got that when I went to, I think I didn't have that until I went to Europe for like uh -huh. study abroad or Ireland, which is, you know, I can't remember if it was Europe at the time. But anyway, uh, like I had that number and I memorized it and then yeah. started using it all the time. Like anytime yeah. that we would ever be like, oh, I got to use a payphone. I'd be like, I got you, dog. Guys, <laughs> it's all up here. Des and Pat Ryan uh, would like to grant you this phone call. <laughs> um, so, right. I thought this was, that scene was really wonderful. The whole I mean, the whole, I, first of all, the episode is pretty wonderful and it wasn't wonderful because of the cameos. I'm just glad you said that because the show has, it just every, every time we talk about it, you note the things that make it so, in, so entirely unique. The same energy that allows them to, to give um, Giancarlo Esposito and Gus Fring that, that scene at the bar that we were so enamored with a few weeks ago. That's the same thing that allows them to be like, yeah, we're a black and white show now. Like, come on, nobody else can do that. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a flex and it's an amazing one. But um, also just more broadly speaking, that it's an entirely different show now. It's the Gene Takovic show. And I am so blown away by Bob Odenkirk, who is playing a completely distinct iteration of the same person. I mean, this, the subtlety involved in that, and if, if people have listened to the interviews he's been doing recently or you know, heard him on Fresh Air, like he is very, very self-deprecating about his abilities as an actor, but there's a subtlety at work here that is remarkable, that he's playing the same human being in a different skin at a different age. I, and, so when I was watching the Breaking Bad episode, Better yeah. Call Saul, it's crazy to see that it, how many versions of this character he's played, even within yep. the character. Because when he's doing Saul in this first appearance on Breaking Bad, it's kind of closer to Buddy Garrity. Like he's he's kind of jocular and like yeah. almost a little bit more masculine, and he's kind of going toe to toe with Hank, and is you know the jokes are the jokes and they're hilarious and the ads are already there and like you can see a lot of it kind of coming out and even in that episode when Walter is pretending to be Badger's like uncle, I think. Mm -hmm. And he's like, the last name is when, Mayhew. When he comes to give the bribe. Yeah. And he's like, my name is, Ma the name's Mayhew. And uh, Saul's like, oh, are you Irish? A fellow potato eater? He's like, my name's actually McGill. I just, I just do the Jewish thing because that's what people want from a lawyer. It's like, it's, it's not dissimilar. And obviously if it's, the name is McGill, they must've had some inkling of this guy has changed his name. Why yeah. did they, why did he do that? But the version that he's playing now is like there's been 10 different iterations of it or updates to the software since he first came on screen. 
And I loved the fact that he did get to play Breaking Bad era Saul again with this um, accrued knowledge. Because it really, when he's, that's the new scene, basically, the scene in the RV with, with Walt and Jesse. Odenkirk is, I mean, it's his show. So he wins that scene. But he's playing, he looks, he's, he's transformed completely. And he's transformed completely not in the way of like, oh, we need to make him look 10 years younger or whatever. He's transformed completely because his physicality has become this other person again. And it's a version of him that we remember instantly. Like, I, I was so taken with his performance as Saul because he slipped right back into it. But that it is a version of Saul that has the, the accrued experience and uh, worry lines and emotion that the character has now been imbued with. So I thought that was just awesome to see. And also really smart, as usual, of this team to be like, we're going to get the gang back together, but this is still the Saul show. Yeah. And the scene is going to center him and who he is and what he brings to these characters and how they play off of each other. But I, I, I don't want to get away from the Kim thing because that was... It, it, obviously, there's much more to talk about. In, it was a very, it was a long episode for Saul as well and kind of ended surprisingly, uh, kind of on a cliffhanger. All I want, I'm just, I rarely say this. I rarely project wants just, I know what TV you want. shows. I, I take what comes. I know what you want. You want to find out what Cassie and Andor's childhood was like. I want to spend as much time as possible with a prepubescent rebel, with yeah. Cassie and Andor. I want us to see him take those fumbling steps towards school. Um, I want this show to go to Florida. I profoundly want the last episode to be Saul, Jimmy, Gene, moving back into bright Technicolor and having a final reckoning with Kim in an Elmore Leonard novel. Like, that's all I want. And it's what so perfect that it was Florida. Part of New Mexico could st- stand in for Florida. I, I want them to go. I think we would know on some level whether it was rumors or not if they had been able to go to Florida. So I don't have high hopes for that. But it, it, these little things that they decide, and you know, we talked to Peter and we've heard them say this in other media, that it isn't, I don't think they really believe in the light switch moment in terms of like creative thunderbolts. Like they, mm-hmm. they talk this stuff out to the degree that would probably be numbing to even be a par- to party to, even if you were interested in it. So it wasn't just a like, let's just name a place, but that just is such a perfect decision. And yeah, his awareness of where she is was kind of a giveaway. I thought that was interesting. I mean, it's interesting. Yeah, you're right. I mean, so I thought that every scene in this episode helps you understand the other scenes in this episode. Mm -hmm. Saul working with Mike and getting all this intel about Walter suggests that he knows how to have a private investigator find something out about somebody. So you Mm -hmm. would guess that even though Francesca tells him the only person who's really called about you is Kim, and he gets really excited because he's like, Kim calls, that means she cares about me, basically. Yeah. That doesn't necessarily mean that Saul doesn't know where she is, right? Like that 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 Saul as Gene could have somehow contracted some private investigator somewhere to track down Kim. So there's one thing. Two, I thought it was really interesting what kind of conversation he has on the payphone, even if we don't know what it is. Because clearly right after it, he goes right into a very Jimmy and Kim-esque caper with Jeff. And what's that guy's name? Buddy? The the guy who has the crisis of conscience at the end? Yes, but do, 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 was your read on it that he does it out of nostalgia or as a, or that he does it as a need for cash, like he needs money for something. I think it's a little bit of come. both. I think it's a little bit of both. I think he's had the taste, got his beak wet with the department <laughs> store caper. 
I think we're getting, especially in black and white, you get this sort of sense of monotony of working the Cinnabon job, the the mm-hmm. the sort of um, the stand mixer, the stand mixer going Spinning. around and around, and this is just like life, and this is why he wanted. This is kind of why he couldn't ever stick to the script when it was like Chuck laying out. Here, you do your time here, you do your time here, you slowly, slowly, slowly build up. And I think he's always in the back of that character's mind thinking, why do I have to play by certain rules that I don't see other people playing by? And I I just wonder whether or not, it's probably a, a combination of all those things, but he kicks in that payphone and pretty much immediately goes into this elaborate, somewhat Robin Hoody scheme where he's picking on all these guys who kind of, quote unquote, deserve to be ripped off. Yep. Until he gets to the one that doesn't. And that guy is not unlike, I guess that guy is not, not unlike Howard in some ways. You know what I mean? Like is somebody or, who's going or Walter through, Or Walter, yeah. Which is what keeps him going. I mean, I think that's, that's a very smart point to suggest that it's a Howard type thing. And then the, the show does something interesting morally to suggest that where most people, like, like is his name Buddy? I'm going to say Buddy. Uh, Buddy pauses because he's like, this guy's sick. I can't yeah, do this. Yeah, he's like, I can't rip off a guy with cancer. But this is the episode where we have Walter White in it. Mm-hmm. And Saul's opinion of people with fatal cancer is perhaps colored by that experience. Yeah, well, he's like, they're capable of a lot more than you think. It's also the centering of Saul in the Walt story, you know, suggests that, I mean, also, it's just the, the other retcon, which I, I, is totally believable, is that Mike has always known everything. And Mike's like, don't do this. This is a huge mistake. And uh, it was, as it turns out. <laughs> um, sorry, spoilers. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it, the other interesting comparison is that the last time uh, Jimmy lost Kim in the episode a few weeks ago, it immediately turned to a Saul montage and we saw Saul sleeping with hookers and living, you know, and basically living a noisy Yeah, lost his hair in a mansion, sleeping with hookers, eating Nutri-Grain bars, yeah. And he's kind of back in that life a little bit, at least a black and white version of it. So is this a binge? For him, you know, to use like addiction oh, language. Yeah. Like, is he basically like, is he, is did he fall off some sort of wagon? Yeah, because yeah, I think that the the thing that was, you know, now in retrospect, remarkable about his, I don't know how many years, two years as Gene, is his complete seeming embrace of the monotony, which is the thing that he avoided up to that point in his life. You know, he he did show up to work. He did make those Cinnabons every day. That was interesting. But I, I just think broadly speaking, though, that, and, you know, we would be remiss if we didn't once again say like this show has the montage belt. Hard to imagine anything else oh, yeah. ever taking it. Thomas Schnauz wrote and directed the episode. And if this is his swan song in the 15 years of the Alba, Alba Kirk universe, what a way to go. I mean, it's just beautiful stuff. The cut from the Doug grave that Walden Jesse did for Saul into Saul in black and white lying in it. Mm-hmm. Reminded me of like that reminded me of Twin Peaks: The Return. Like that was awesome. The go from the dark night and the color to the black and white shot. That was beautifully done, cinematically great. But I but I just feel like the thing that was exciting for me about the episode was there is a different pulse to a show that is in the present tense. Mm-hmm. We don't know what's going to happen next, and it's a very very different way to engage with the show. Now, people who have never wavered the way I have, whether correctly or incorrectly over the past few years, will point out that there has always been a brilliant element of chance and unexpected surprise in the show with characters like Kim or with Nacho. And that's all true. But this show is about Saul and we are now fully present in it. But 
These people got to say, like, I, it's funny. You'd think that even if you had given us, right, on this podcast, if we had done a thought exercise when we were saying, like, well, what's left? Who's left on the board? In any other show or universe, show universe, I think we would have correctly been hard-pressed to identify characters that could have even carried plot water going yeah. forward after the board had been cleared. But I, I still am embarrassed that even after all this time with these guys, I don't think I would have gotten there after 10 minutes to be like, well, Francesca's still in play. We don't yeah, know her right. story. We're going to spend 10, 15 minutes with her. Or the guy who drove the cab once two seasons ago, okay, he's going to be recast, but he's going to matter. You know what I mean? Like that's, it's elegant. It's Heisenbergian the way they do that. And they get me every time. I have a couple other questions for you. Carol Burnett seems too significant a casting choice to have it just be drinking stops and watching cat videos. And although Dainu, I mean, come on. Sure. I mean, that, yeah. and that's awesome. And like, if that is what it is, I mean, obviously she sees Jeff Jean and dude we're calling buddy meeting in a garage. We probably should yes. be like a little bit better at our jobs and find out who that guy is. It, it's been, it's been suggested. Yeah. I've heard that. Yeah. Uh, and she has mentioned to Gene himself that the reason why Jeff is living with her is because he got into trouble in Albuquerque and that he fell yes. in with the wrong crowd. So obviously her antenna are up. Yep. With Gene kind of acting a little bit funny when he's like, why don't we take these schnapps to go? I want to see this car and everything. So one of the things I'm really enjoying about this last few, these last few episodes is that the Felina part of Better Call Saul was Lalo a couple of episodes ago. The is, it, is that what it's called? The that episode, the, the, the series finale of the of, series uh, finale Breaking of Breaking Bad. Bad, happened in Saul when Lalo gets killed. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's that whole action set piece of him breaking into the to the super lab and everything. And now we're getting something completely different. Now we're getting mm-hmm. almost like this extended Granite State meets early Better Call Saul of, of these cons. I do wonder whether or not one dramatic beat is coming whether it's with this sick guy that Saul is trying to rip off or it's Carol Burnett's character, it's Marion. Yeah, before, I think Before Mary, we get to Florida or whatever this sort of The, the Marion character is significant, but I, I don't know whether it's going to be any more than she's onto them and what, whatever that means. I'm not, I'm not sure. There was a lot of, this is what's fun about being fully off the map now is that you know, by, by there, there is it understandable story reasons why the Walt and Jesse cameo was built around Saul's first appearance, both in terms of closing the loop on the character, but also that was an opportunity to fill in some blanks. If anyone had any idea that Bob Odenkirk and Saul would be so integral, that scene that was written for this episode could well have been written 10 plus years ago, but it yeah. wasn't. So there's, there's a lot of logic to that. But then the conspiracy brain is like, well, why put Lalo and Ignacio's name back into it? Right. Why remind us that his fear, the driving existential fear of, of Saul's life once he became Saul was that these cartel demons would come back to haunt him. Sure. Now, do I want that to be the case? I don't know who, who would even represent those cartels at this point since they were pretty well and truly wiped out. But it's a thought. It's a question. There's a... My favorite moment in the interaction that Jesse and Walter and uh, Saul have in the RV is when the they're trying to get the battery to work, the car battery mm-hmm. to work. 
And uh, Saul's like, can you try it again? Or are we going to be like entombed here for thousands of years in sand? And that's basically the end of Ozymandias, the poem. You know, this idea of these things wiped away by time. And it's going to be hard to reckon with, but also like pretty genius if we get to the end of Saul. And that's like the takeaway from the Albuquerque shows is like, there are these characters, but their like legacy fades. You know what I mean? And there's almost something perfect about this show being set when it's set because it's like just fading from memory as like, oh yeah, payphones and Cinnabons and stuff like totally. that. You know what I mean? Saturn sedans. Do, yeah. do you, when you see Cranston come back and play this part, what is your feeling about it? Because I, I think that I have... I, I mean this with no disrespect. He looks yeah. better than Aaron Paul does right now. Like, like because of the way people age, I think, I think yes. the, the jump from the age Aaron Paul was when he played Jesse Pinkman on the show to now is a more obvious aging oh, yeah. than Cranston in the last 10 or 15 years. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think yeah. I, I will probably look very similar from this age to 55 or whatever. But yes. like, I look a lot different than I looked when I was in my 20s. <laughs> Yes. I mean, Aaron Paul looks healthy and good, but he is an adult man. Number one. Yeah, he looks, he's good. He looks good as shit. But I'm just saying like, he he, is an older man pretending to be 19 in this. Yes. That that is the toughest one. So shooting that whole scene at night probably was helpful. My feeling about the Cranston playing Walter White thing again. And it, and it's, it, I, I, I think it's different. Like for me, I don't, I don't want to see John Hamm do Don Draper again. I wish Gandolfini was alive to make this choice, but I wouldn't, I don't think I'd want to see him do Tony Soprano again. I think there's something beautiful in ending things. But I do have a slightly different feeling about this. Maybe it's because I am more dispassionate about this character or about reunions generally, but I think it's the reason why it's it's 50% the story of how much all these people like working together is part of the story of Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. So, knowing that Cranston is there to see his friends and his Mezcal company partner, Jesse, I mean, Aaron, uh, Aaron Paul, and like to support Bob Odenkirk on his show and support Vince and Peter and Thomas and all these people, that goodwill carries over onto the screen for me. But the other part of it is Walter White's story is done with a finality that we rarely get on TV or in movies otherwise, right? There's not going to be a sequel series. Sorry if you're listening, you know this already, he's dead. So anything extra whether it's this or an El Camino, is just like a little grace note, right? It's just like it's just like a little running it back, having a little fun. It, there's never a sense that like, oh, here we go, which I appreciate. It, but it, maybe it takes away some of the power, which is why we're kind of underselling something that, or maybe it's why Peter Gould undersold it by announcing it was going to happen. You know what I mean? This didn't feel seismic. It felt nice. Yeah. And I think that's okay. I'm very much looking forward to next week's Vince Gilligan directed one. We will probably need to adjust our schedule because Andy and I have been receiving screen. I mean, nobody gives a shit, but we've been receiving screeners and now we won't. So we're going to have to watch that on Monday night record, uh, you know, Tuesday morning. So we'll get them to you as quickly as we can, but you know, we're in, it's money time now. It's Vince Gilligan next week and Peter gold the following week. And I, I can't wait to see where it goes. And it's money time now. Cause we're going to talk about industry. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? 
To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our boys are back. So, uh, obviously, we've had Mickey Down and Conrad K on the show before. We got to hang out with them. So, we're like a little in the bag for them. We're a little bit in the bag for industry, which came along like a kind of like a comet out of the sky show for me, where I was like, kind of, I remember watching the first episode of this show, whatever that was, summer 19, right? Summer 20? Uh-huh. Summer 20. 19, summer 20, and needing it. <laughs> Like really needing that show because it was obviously like a fucked up time, but it was also like, I wanted to, I I think I responded to just how different it felt from all television, the kinetic nature of it, Mm -hmm. the immersion in the world that it was set. And because of the Harper character, who's the protagonist of industry going into this uh, financial services, this investment uh, bank, she's like the audience avatar, but is also the sort of very much the gifted protagonist who is the, basically like force sensitive person going into into battle and that combined with just sort of the elliptical storytelling how it would kind of shift gears and a character who was in the background was all of a sudden in the foreground and had this completely beautiful backstory um thinking specifically of the the guy that rob gets paired with later in the season so good Yeah. yeah so there's all these like different like almost um getting a sense of like watching creators make it up as they're going along and and kind of almost getting away with something, which I, I think those Mickey and Conrad would almost admit, and we're we're gonna have them on very soon, I'm sure, so to talk about this, but they would almost admit that that was the case. That they were coming, kind of coming into this, flying a little bit blind and making something kind of punk rock uh that got released on HBO. And then so what I would say about this second season, which I so far have adored, is that it feels like there's like two hands on the wheel now. And that they take this first episode of the second season to very, very expertly set up a series of one-on-one battles throughout the show and one-on-one kind of, not confrontations, but pairings. Yaz and Harper, Eric and Jesse for Harper's, you know, attentions and future mm-hmm. or whatever. London versus New York. You know, all of these things that they kind of put into play really, really expertly in the first episode of the season to just be like, here, like, this is what's at stake this season. And also, now we're going to drop a kilo of cocaine and some sex on top of it. Yeah, I I like the way you described what this show meant coming out of nowhere. I mean, I this is something I don't know if our listeners 
like as much as you do, but I know you love it. So I'm going to do it, which is when I use an analogy about a different podcast, like one of the ones I do listen to. Neil Gaiman, creator of the Sandman shows coming out uh, next week, we'll talk about it, is on Marin. And they're talking about the Velvet Underground because, of course, they are. And Gaiman's like, well, I consider the Velvet Underground to be like a piano where someone hits a G note and 90% of the world can't hear it, but it resonates profoundly with the other 10%. Oh, yeah. And Industry Season 1 was resonating like a motherfucker for us. Yeah. So, yeah, obviously, I'm thrilled to have it back. And one of the things that I loved about the show, it's not just showcased here in the second season, which is my God, they hit home runs with the casting. Like we love Mahala Harold. Hopefully she'll come back on too. But Marisa Bella, um, Ken Lung, like down the line, there's just surprising rich performers who you're excited to see. It's also that they understood something that is hard to articulate and even harder to sell in an active culture marketplace, which is the, the abiding precept that we hold about mystery books, which is at a certain point, I don't really care about the crimes. I just care about the world. Yeah. Can be applied to other genres as well. And I know I said this about someone in TV once, and I cannot remember who I said it about. So I'm just going to take that designation away from whoever it was and put it on Mickey and Conrad, which is to say that above all else, they are first class vibe merchants. Like the vibe of this show remains immaculate. Yeah. And not just immaculate, sui generis. All of that is to say, I didn't rewatch the first season before diving into the premiere that hopefully you guys watch tonight or you will watch now that it's available. And I was thrown. I hadn't worked in industry in a while. Yeah. And I forgot that industry works to its own rules. And Well, not unlike Harper, where, you've been working from home for a little while, you know? <laughs> for real. Yeah. And I paused three times to make sure I was watching the right screener. Yeah. That I hadn't skipped one or two because now and we can segue into more talking about the episode. They made a bold choice here that I think absolutely suits the show, which is to steer into the dislocation of our current or at least our recent moment. And so in the world of the show, a year has passed, which is pretty radical, actually, for the way TV shows tend to work, where everything is causal and one thing leads to another and A goes to B goes to C goes to D. And that, you know, maybe that's what they're pivoting to in the setup that you were describing about what happens in this episode in terms of future areas of future conflict. Mm -hmm. But instead, everything that happened in the first season happened, but a year has passed. The world has blown up and gone nuts, and Harper's basically been eating cheeseburgers alone in a fancy hotel suite. Uh, working yeah, I, I really want to know, do, looking at that, were you like, can I, where do I sign up to sacrifice myself <laughs> to, to do be that able life? to do that? <laughs> I mean, I'm more of a hotel club sandwich guy, but yes, yeah, a million percent. And it You know that that's my shit, right? Like, to get off a of flight, Go to yeah. the hotel, yeah, and immediately go to the hotel bar and get a cheeseburger and an ice cold beer. Yes, and it, yeah. for me, there's certain foods we've talked about this. I think that are just like that are certain things that taste better in hotels, or that yeah. you only get while traveling. And for me, it's club sandwiches is one. Pringles, no free ads, but I'm like I'm not like clocking cans of Pringles. IRL. No, you're, but, you support local a, businesses, meaning Philadelphia businesses, and you have hers delivered hers. to you, right? Yeah. But I sometimes, yes, I do. But, um, but like in a hotel room or at a hotel, yeah, that's, or, or even I know they've sponsored us, Heineken beer. That's a hotel beer as far as I'm concerned. But anyway, I just want to speak to the dislocation of it, which makes such sense for the character, but also 
is anti-TV in a way that I really respect and I think is what I initially slightly bumped against, right? Which is this idea that the time we spend with fictional characters as they work through stuff matters and resonates for them in their fictional lives as much as it did for us. So that after that first season, Harper and Yasmin, they should be best friends. Not that they ended in that place, but that they went through it yeah. And you know that there's a softening that happens season to season in any TV show. It's generally like in workplace comedies, but it happens in every show, whether the char- whether the creator fights it or not, where your fondness for the characters and the writer's fondness for the characters and our intimacy with them over time begins to bleed into the product. And so everyone's a little bit nicer to each other or a little bit wink, wink. I know you're n- you don't mean it. And industry is knives. Industry is knives out. Yeah. And that's the world that it's about. And that's the world that we're back into. And once that locked back in rhythmically for me. I understood it again and I was feeling it. And when the Nathan McKay score drops, I'm like, I, what was in this water? Was it the same water that, that that they were giving out in the taxis in Omaha? Because I'm blissed. I'm so feeling bliss right now. They've taken the restrictor plate off of Marissa Abella, like full stop. Like she's up for the Amy Winehouse movie. Like she's, I, I feel like there's a lot of momentum behind her as mm-hmm. a, as a, as an actress. But my I think what they've done with this character is fucking awesome. And they were like, you know, what was really cool was like Harper having this crisis of like identity and Mm -hmm. mixing like her ambition with her hangups and all this stuff and like wanting to please Eric, but also wanting to kill him, but also not wanting to do what it takes to all this stuff that happened in the first season. And they were like, you know, what would be cool is if Yasmin did that too. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. now you've got this character who is essentially moon knighting across London <laughs> um, in, you know, and and trying to decide who she is and still fucking is super <laughs> mad at Harper. I, I want to do this so badly. She's just snorting that conchu. Is that? <laughs> That's right. And uh, that would be funny if there was a drug that you like snorted and you became different characters from Moon Knight. <laughs> different like, or parts. You s- <laughs> or you snorted and you hear F. Murray Abraham's voice in your head. Or you snorted it and you were like, actually, Moon Knight's good. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that's available in Burbank. They give it out. Um, my two favorite things that happen with Yasmin in this episode. One is when she's in the car, the drug dealer's car with Celeste. Uh, and she's like, well, we should do the buddy system. If you like, have you ever seen that movie, The Descent? Which I need to know what her top five horror movies are. If that's just like a go-to ref for her. And then second of all is... When Kenny, and thank God Kenny's back. Oh, the Kenny scene is everything to me. And Kenny's yeah. like, goes up to her and he's like, basically like, you look like shit. And I'm like, they don't have enough makeup in the world to make her look like shit. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like she what could have they, like a yeah. fucking syringe sticking out of her throat. <laughs> and I'd still be like, God, what did she, did she just like splash on some water and like come back to work? Like she looks great. This is also why Chris, I think Harry Lawson who plays Rob must be a great actor because he basically is the performer equivalent of a racehorse through one season and one episode where he does all of the drugs and is still showing up for work. And now he's gone through some stuff and is at least so, marginally sober, sober yeah. and still looks great. But his brokenness is just through performance. So I'm like a lot of respect for him because all of these young Adonai are just like, I'm sorry, I guess things work differently in your 20s. Shout out to us and Aaron Paul, who you were just talking about. Things change <laughs> at a certain point. So, I, but, I, but the Kenny piece and the Rishi piece is why the show wins. And we yes. should talk about the Jay Duplass thing. But like, this isn't a workplace comedy, although it's a workplace and it's sometimes very, very funny. But there is a lot of thought and care given to these 
marge. I don't want to call them marginal. They matter, background, but like background tertiary char- like, characters. Yeah, yeah. And you know, we know from talking to Mickey and Conrad that they are their favorites. Also, not the actors, but having that deep bench and like writing them sneaky secret killer laugh lines and stuff. The little things like Rishi, who we don't know, but we kind of know, having a serious girlfriend, like that's gold. But for me, the Kenny thing and the Kenny arc was so relatively out of the main gravitational pull of the first season, but it mattered. It mattered for the way he treated um, Yaz. It mattered from the way he behaved and felt he could behave. And that's why it's so crucial that he comes back and the pieces of him that are different, but also the pieces of him that are the same because he's still kind of monstrous to her, but now he's doing it for the side of good, right? Like it's, it's, it's a great re-weighting of things. And it's those little decisions that make me excited about the future of the show. Because, look, the vibe is like no other. And it's been interesting seeing the reviews catch up, season two reviews catch up to season one. Yes. Being like, like this this is a generational workplace yeah. show. It is. And it is fearless and sexy and crazy and fun. But it's it's dug in. You know, and you see it in my Hollis performance. You see it just in the weight of that character, Harper, which we'll have plenty of time over the course of the season to talk about, but it remains totally unique to me on TV in terms of her role as a black American woman living in this world, in this city, and the gravitas that she brings to it. It's and the complexity is awesome. Yeah, also the scene just, with Rob is is other characters on shows like this who are the heroes don't get to have scenes like they that. also don't get mercilessly punked like she does in the, the pub at the the Rishi wedding drinks where she essentially yes. gets like destroyed by like the social anxiety of being in that group. But then Yasmin just being like, get the fuck out of here. And there's, you know, we've spent most of the last 10 years talking about antiheroes. I wouldn't necessarily call Har- Harper an antihero, but I don't think that she knows what like heroism in this show looks like yet. Like she's had a couple of Icarito, like Icarito, that's a, golf reference for no laying up fans. How, how uh, dare you? Uh, it's actually, it's like she's had some Icarus moments where she's like had like these great, great accomplishments and then she's crashed a couple of times. It's a, what, it, what is she in this show? It, what it, it, she's obviously the protagonist in a lot of ways, but like, is it about her being a financial genius? Is it about her mm-hmm. figuring out how to like be in the world and be comfortable with who she is? Like that's the, the questions that kind of surround that main character are really interesting and leading us to Duplass, like we get this kind of new layer of her, I think, when she meets this Jesse Bloom character who's uh, uh, Jay Duplass play, plays a hedge fund guy who's who's hit it rich betting, like basically shorting the world in, during COVID, like right before COVID. Mm-hmm. And there's a version of that guy where you cast a hot asshole to play him and it kind of offsets Ken Long a little bit. Mm-hmm. But they picked Duplass, who has such an innate warmth and humanity and empathy. And to have that kind of be present, but you're like, but you fucking like basically got rich off of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Like, is is such an awesome tension when you're watching it. Like, what did you what did you think of his casting? I mean, first of all, I love J.D. Plus as an actor, along with Rachel Brosnahan. He's first ballot fake Jewish cosplay yeah. Hall of Famer. Like, great work. The the rest of the uh, Mishpoka support you. Like in your <laughs> in your journey, you're doing great. Um, 
I just really like him as an actor and I think he's a surprising actor and he's an intuitive actor. And I like casting someone who is emotionally driven in his choices and in his performance and in his physicality being a shark. Like, I just think that's, it, it's like what you said at the beginning. It's, it's, it's the opposite of what you would expect for the part. And I think that works. I think it also makes sense to put another physically slight American in this Barracuda tank that is London. And I, I'm, I'm pretty into their dynamic together already. So I'm excited about what's to come. I, I do want to circle back to the thing you said about Harper, which is really smart. And it actually reminds me a little bit of Summer's other hot, sexy show, which was The Bear. Mm. In that there are certain fields that are just fundamentally unhealthy. Now, I like restaurants more than podcasting. I like hedge funds. Yeah, <laughs> I would say podcasting is extremely. I have podcasting uh, neck a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Like from leaning forward to uh-huh. deliver your ideas. And I, I compulsively tell people to get simply safe when I'm at a bar. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So there are some some pitfalls. I agree. Yeah. But just to say that like, and there are many fields like this, I'm sure, but like when I've talked to people, it's not just fictionally on the bear, but when I've talked to people who work professionally in kitchens, they are like, or have, and have come out the other side of it, they're like, there were things in me that were fundamentally broken from a young age. And then I found a secret circus to run away to where I, my brokenness were the right, gave me the tools to be really, 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 really good at something. And so I stayed there, but that's not the same thing as addressing the broken parts or thinking about who you actually are or what you want to be doing, you know, and that's the takeaway in industry in a, in a really interesting way is that yeah, Harper is technically good at the things that make her good at this work, but they don't seem to be helping full stop, right? Like they don't like excelling at doing this does not seem to be addressing any of the underlying issues. So it yeah. makes it a rich text for a TV show. Certainly. I also think that like what this industry is, which I still, I basically don't understand it. You no, know, not much at all. Much to my own detriment. Not at all. Is there, it, it doesn't seem like it is the kind of thing where it's like Carmi and the bear is a good chef. Like Sydney says, mm-hmm. he made the best meal I've ever had. Right? Like right. there is like a product at the end of that that is sort of like, only this guy could have done this. I am sure that some people in the financial services industry and in banking can do certain things that other people can't do because they've got big fucking brains and they're like clairvoyant about certain things. But it's more about relationships. I mean, that's what Eric is sort of saying is that we right. need these people to be in this city to meet these other people and take their money. And I don't know, like Harper had like that really good idea in the pilot episode in the first episode of the first season where she like hits that number and Eric's like, I see you. She also fucked up several times over the course of that season and Eric saves her possibly because, you know, he wants to kind of ingratiate her to him or possibly for, because he thinks she's really talented. Nicole from Malin Mercer, I think saves her ass when she goes to see the play. The thing that Harper is good at is finding the thing that the other person needs so like when she goes and sees nicole's Mm. like nephew i think in a in a play it's like for some reason no one else had thought to do that right is that like a skill i'll be i i really want to find out this this season like what it is they think what it is harper wants to do you know yeah because also what does it mean if your skill is 
anticipating what other people want and showing up for it. You know, that's, that's a pretty disassociative skill. So, and it speaks to the, the, the devastating line that, that Yaz gives her, right? About being loved and no, what she said, no one's ever going to love you. Yeah. I mean, it's tough. <laughs> hard to come back from that. It's a tough one. I mean, I know your neck hurts a little bit yeah. and, and you're constantly talking about home security options, but that's, that seems rougher. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, we're going to have Mickey and Conrad on soon. Maybe not beknownst to them, but we'll, we'll hit them up. And we're going to be talking about industry, I would imagine, pretty much every episode for the rest of the season, obviously. We're pretty addicted to this show. So, Andy, it was great to see you today. Um, thanks for hanging out. We'll be back on Thursday. Anything to tease about Thursday? You're just episode? so gracious. I always feel like we've been doing this for over 10 years. And at the end of shows, you're like, thanks Nobody, for I don't out. even know why I say that. You know, it's, it's nice. Just, it's I habit. feel really welcomed. Yeah. This is not a Yaz and Harper dynamic. Not at all. Never quit Kenny you. And Re- Kenny and Rishi? Yeah. <laughs> uh, we were produced by Kaya McMullen. We'll be back on Thursday. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, Ranskis.